Another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy, where we seek to understand the practice of plural marriage and how it was practiced amongst the saints. To be fair, we know how it was practiced. Well, we're learning how it was practiced, and you might have heard that's Malia. I'm bringing her back for another um, episode just to help break up the time and to offer an outsider's perspective. Malia, of course, comes from pioneer stock, but she has not heard this history before, so I'm just trying to get her observations. a little history. I'm not obsessed, like some people, like Lindsay are. That's okay. Obsession, you call it obsession, I call it a hobby. So so we're going to talk about the the early Utah period. Uh, If this is your first time tuning in, though, I would highly recommend you start at episode one. The series is meant to go in order, and... Um, hopefully you will enjoy that. But let's get into it. We have a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about the U- early Utah period. And this is this is some of my favorite information because it's fantastic. So we talked about Brigham Young's wife. We talked about some of the other practices going on. But uh, now we're going to talk about what it was like when the saints are first there. In August of 1852, this would be a big, huge, critical changing point for the Utah saints who were often called the Brighamites because they followed Brigham Young on this sort of biblical exodus out of the east to the west. So they're living in, you know, Upper California, which would be Utah now, and uh, they're trying to make their home. In August of 1852, there would be a conference held in the Mormon settlement in Utah. Orson Pratt spoke, and then Brigham Young got up and for the first time would read Joseph Smith's July 12th, 1843, Revelations on Celestial Marriage, which would later be known as the Doctrine and Covenants 132. So this is huge. This is the first public acknowledgement of plural marriage being practiced. Brigham Young said, quote, It was one of the most important revelations unto man in this last dispensation. And he would further state that, quote, no man would be exalted in heaven without the application of the principle involved. And I remember reading that as a girl being freaked out by that. <laughs> and, of course, I've heard a lot of nuance to that saying, you don't have to practice celestial marriage, you know, plural marriage to go to the celestial kingdom. But Brigham Young was very clear that plurality of marriage was an important part of Mormon theology. So kind of a quick, dumb question. Did Brigham understand how population works? What do you mean? Like, did he understand that if a man has 60 wives, that that's like 59 guys that aren't going to have a wife? Well, you have to understand that at this point, this is not an option for them. I'm sure it crossed Brigham Young's mind because this would become an issue later on, even in Brigham Young's life. But um, this was not quite an issue yet. Of course, there were many women that needed to be taken care of. And in a way, there was a practicality about it. In the 1850s, if you were a single woman, if your husband died and you had no skill set or education, there were not a lot of options for you, right? Right. If you were a widow and you were not well off, there were not a lot of options for you. Were there more women that were Mormon back then than men? That's a good question. I don't believe so. And I can post a graph that shows um, 
the example of, you know, widows and divorced women that were married as opposed to young girls. Because while that's a nice dream to think that this was only used to take care of those women, that's absolutely not how it was practiced. As we see with Joseph Smith, who married, already married women. And Brigham Young would do the same thing. And, um, of course, as we get into the Utah period, we start seeing more and more younger wives being married and that kind of thing. Um, but, but let's go back to the 1852 announcement. The, re- the revelation itself was first published in the church's official newspaper, the Desert News, under the title of, quote, The Principle and Doctrine of Having Many Wives and Concubines, a Revelation to Joseph Smith, Jr., July 12th, 1843, end quote. This is so important. I cannot overstate the importance because this is the first public acknowledgement of plural marriage. Okay, I have one stupid question, too. Is there any way that um, Brigham just made this up right now? What do you mean? At the time, is there any way that he just wrote that to be like, oh, see, Joseph said this. Or are we sure that Joseph had this revealed to him at the time? Now, that's a good question, too, because there's this whole uh, movement called Joseph Smith Fought Polygamy Movement. Who argue this? Right, who argue that that it was Brigham Young that really amped, ramped this up, and that it was invented, but no, there there were said to be several copies of this revelation. One Emma reportedly threw in the fire or tore up and destroyed, and Hiram had made a copy at the time. But even let's say that that was forged or whatever. You have to remember Joseph Smith's trusted secretary William Clayton had gotten his plural wife, his wife's sister pregnant at this point, and other people had had babies from Nauvoo, Joseph's trusted friends. So it's not like this was a Brigham Young established practice. Now, could Brigham Young have embellished the importance of the practice? Absolutely. And that's up for debate. But um, because Joseph, it seems to me that he didn't intend polygamy to be practiced by every man in the church. What do you think? I mean, I know I'm asking about intentions, but yeah, I, I don't think that he did either. In fact, Joseph was, you can argue, is very experimental in his sealing practices. Um, the Council of the 15 Minutes that are coming out, it's said that Joseph might have introduced the, the practice of law of adoption. That's a controversial issue, but Joseph was very much interested in this idea of tying people together. Now, of course, George, Joseph was interested in other things as well with plural marriage, but Brigham Young, I think, saw a very practical uh, use for it. And we have to remember, Brigham Young was a different prophet in that he was a logistical man. He did a lot of planning. He brought these people over. So I think he started to see if plural marriage could be a practical living arrangement to help get people there, establish them, keep them tied to the gospel, that kind of thing. Um, and 21 of Brigham, Brigham Young's 55 wives had never been married, six were separated or divorced from their husbands, 16 were widows, and six had living husbands from whom divorces had apparently not been obtained. And there's marital information that's unavailable for six of them. So Brigham is starting his own interesting way of doing things. (laughs) Well, people would call it a brothel. That's what outsiders would call it. Um, he would say, a few years ago, one of my wives, when talking about wives leaving their husbands, said, quote, I wish my husband's wives would leave him, every soul of them except myself. This is the way they all feel, more or less at times, both old and young, end quote. So Brigham Young is, acknowledges that this is hard. And like I said, at this point, it's early. 
there are already divorces. There are already squabbles. There are already apostasies, people leaving. We have John D. Lee's wife leaving with a traitor, you know, that kind of traitor, not a traitor. He, tra- he was a traitor. Does that make sense? Trader with a D. Thank you. Um, I have another great quote from Brigham about this. He said, Sisters, do you wish to make yourselves happy? Then what is your duty? It is for you to bear children. Are you tormenting yourselves by thinking that your husbands do not love you? I would not care whether they loved a particle or not, but I would cry out like one of old in the joy of my heart. I have got a man from the Lord. Hallelujah. I am a mother. End quote. Ah, yes. Hallelujah. I am a mother. I I think that most days when I wake up. (laughs) This is from the Journal of Discourses, volume 9, page 37. If you want to hear that quote, it's a great quote. Um, So you can see that that Brigham really thought that uh, these women were so lucky to be married. And he really started to see women in many ways as these whining, complaining uh, thorns in the sides of men. Well, and to be honest, though, if you've got like 50 wives, like that would be, I can't even imagine trying to like negotiate that, you know? And, and the complaints were big on, on September 21st, 1856. So just a couple of years after it was announced publicly, Apostle J.M. Grant preached a fiery sermon rebuking those Mormons who were engaging in all manner of sin. And he calls out blood atonement and chastised the women who complained about polygamy. He would say, quote, some have received the priesthood and have a knowledge of the things of God, and still they dishonor the cause of truth, commit adultery, and every other abomination beneath the heavens, and then meet you here on the street and deny it. I say that these are men and women that I would advise to go to the president immediately and ask him to appoint a committee to attend to their case and let it be a place selected and let that committee shed their blood. We have those among us that are full of all manner of abominations. Those who need to have their blood shed for water will not do. Their sins are too deep a dye. You may think that I'm not teaching you Bible doctrine, but what says the Apostle Paul? I would ask how many covenant breakers there are in the city and in the kingdom. I believe that there are many, and if those covenant breakers, we need a place designated where they can shed their blood. And we have women who like anything but the celestial law of God. And if they could break asunder the cables of the Church of Christ, there is scarcely a mother in Israel but would do it this day. And they talk it to their husbands, to their daughters, and to their neighbors. And they say, they have not seen a week's happiness since they've become become acquainted with the law of plural marriage or since their husbands took a second wife. We have been trying long enough with those people. And I go in for letting the sword of the Almighty be unsheathed, not only in word, but in deed. I go in for letting the wrath of the Almighty burn up the dross and the filth. And if the people will not glorify the Lord by sanctifying themselves, let the wrath of the Almighty God burn against them and the wrath of the Joseph and Brigham and Heber, Heber and high heaven. Brethren and sisters, we want you to repent and forsake your sins that cannot be forgiven through baptism. Let your blood be shed and let the smoke ascend that the incense thereof may come up before God as the atonement of your sins and the sins in Zion may be afraid. End quote. Wow. Well, I don't remember that scene from Little House on the Prairie. Do you? No, I think they left that out of the movie, movie Legacy. So this is a controversial practice of blood atonement. It's a very controversial thing still among scholars how widely it was practiced. It becomes this early Utah period uh, doctrine that that Brigham Young would help teach, saying that some sins are too great, they cannot be forgiven by Christ's atonement. And that only you could only be atoned through the shedding of your own blood. And here we have this 
apostle J.M. Grant preaching that women complaining about celestial law deserve to be killed for it. And Michael Quinn, D. Michael Quinn, the church historian who has done amazing work, has some controversial stories about finding bones in the desert of prostitutes and women and and these kind of things about people that were, you know, kind of found on these sacrificial hills. Yikes, that's heavy. Yeah, and John D. Lee uh, was said to atone for his sins with Mountain Meadows. And again, this was given in 1856, one year before Mountain Meadows Massacre. So you have to remember, 1852, publicly announced. Then we have a, just a couple years, about five years, and Utah is starting to get fiery, starting to get um, fanatical about these doctrines. So it's becoming it's becoming an issue. This sermon that I read was followed by President Young, who gave similar exhortations. In fact, he went so far as say, as to threaten to set all the women free from their marriages if they didn't set up, a, shape up, and stop complaining. He said, "Quote." I want all the people to say what they will do, and I know that God wishes all his servants, all his faithful sons and daughters, the men and the women that inhabit the city, to repent of their wickedness, or we will cut them off. There's, there are sins that men commit for which they cannot receive forgiveness in this world, or in that which it is to come, and if they had their eyes open to see their true condition, they would be perfectly willing to have their blood spilt upon the ground, that the smoke thereof might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins, and the smoking incense would atone for their sins, whereas if such is not the case, they will stick to them and remain upon them in the spirit world." So he's basically saying those sins don't leave when you die unless you atone for them. I know when you hear my brethren telling about people cutting people off from this earth that you consider it a strong doctrine, but it's, it is to save them, not to destroy them. I do know that there are sins committed of such nature that if people did understand the doctrine of salvation, they would tremble because of their situation. And furthermore, I know that there are transgressors who, if they knew themselves and the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness would beg of their brethren to shed their blood, that the smoke thereof ascend to God as an offering to appease the wrath which is kindled against them, and that the law might have its course. I will say it further. I have had men come to me and offer their lives to atone for their sins. It is true that the blood of the Son of God was shed for the sins through the fall, and those committed by men, yet men can commit sins which can never remit. And it was, as it was in ancient days, so it is in our day. That there are sins that can be atoned for by the blood of the blood of the man. That is the reason why men talk to you as if they do from the stand. They understand the doctrine and throw out a few words about it. You may have been taught the doctrine, but you do not understand it. Now, for my proposition, it is more particularly for my sisters, and it is frequently happening that women say that they are unhappy. Men will say, my wife, though a most excellent woman, has not seen a happy day since I took a second wife. No, not a happy day for a year, says one. And another has seen a happy day for five years. Has not seen a happy day for five years. It is said that women are tied down and abused, that they are misused and have not the liberty they ought to have. That they may, that many of them are wading through a perfect flood of tears because of the conduct of some men, together with their own folly. I wish my own women to understand that what I'm going to say to them is for them as well as others. And I want those that are, I want those who are here to tell their sisters, yes, all the women of this community, and then write it back to the states and do it as often as you please with it. I'm going to give you this from the, I'm going to give you from this time to the sixth day of October next for the reflection. 
that you may determine whether you wish to stay with your husbands or not, and then I'm going to set every woman at liberty and say to them, now go your way. My women with the rest, go your way. And my wives have got to go do one of two things, either round up their shoulders to endure the afflictions of this world and live their religion, or they may leave, for I will not have them about me. I will go into heaven alone rather than having scratching and fighting around me. I will set all at liberty. What? First wife too? Yes, I will liberate you all. I know what my women will say. They will say, you can have as many women as you please, Brigham, but I want to go somewhere and do something to get rid of the whiners. I do not want them to receive a part of the truth and spurn the rest out of doors. I wish my women and Brother Kimball's and Brother Grant's to leave, and every woman in this territory, or I'll say in their hearts that they will embrace the gospel, the whole of it. Tell the Gentiles that I will free every woman in this territory at our next conference. What? The first wife, too? Yes. There shall not be one held in bondage. All shall be set free. And then let the father be the head of the family, the master of his own household, and let him treat them as an angel who would treat them. And let the wives and the children say amen to what he says and be subject to his dictates instead of dictating the man, instead of trying to govern him. No doubt some are thinking, I wish Brigham would say what would become of the children. I will tell you what my feelings are. I will let my wives take the children, and I have property enough to support them and, and can educate them and then give them a good fortune. I can get, I can take a fresh start. I do not desire to keep a particle of my property except enough to protect me from a state of nudity. And I would say, wives, you are welcome to the children. Only do not teach them iniquity, for if you do, I will send an elder or come myself to teach them the gospel. You teach them life and salvation, or I will send elders to instruct them. Let every man thus treat wives, keeping raiment enough to clothe his body, and say to your wives, Take all that I have and be set at liberty. But if you stay with me, you shall comply and the, with the law of God, and that too without any murmuring and whining. You must fulfill the law of God in every respect and round up your shoulders and walk up the mark without any grunting. Now recollect that the two weeks from tomorrow, I'm going to set you at liberty. But the first wife will say, it is hard for I have lived with my husband 20 years or 30 and have raised a family or of children for him. And it is a great trial for me to have more women. Then I say it is time for that you gave up. Then I say it's time you gave him up to other women who will bear children. If my wife had borne me all the children that she ever would bear, the celestial law would teach me to take young women that would have children. That is why the doctrine of plurality of wives was revealed. The noble spirits which are waiting for tabernacles might be brought forth. Sisters, I am not joking. I do not throw out my proposition to banter your feelings, to see whether you will leave your husbands, all or any of you, but I do know that there is no cessation to the everlasting whining of the many women in this territory. I am satisfied in this case. But, says one, I, ha I want to have my paradise now. And says another, I don't think I should be in paradise if I was still to Brother Brigham, and I thought I should be happy when I became his wife or Brother Hebers. I loved you so much, and I thought I was going to go to heaven right off, right here on the spot. What a curious doctrine it is that we are preparing to enjoy. The only heaven for you is that which you make yourselves. My heaven is here. And he lays his hand on his heart, carrying it with me. When do I expect it in perfection? When I come up in the resurrection, then I shall have it and not until then. But some women will come and say, really, Brother John and Brother William, I thought you were going to make a heaven for me. And they get into trouble because a heaven is not made for them by the men, even though agency is upon women as well as upon men.
True, there is a curse upon the woman that is not upon the man, namely, that her whole affection shall be towards her husband. And what is next? He shall rule over you. But how is it now? Your desire is to your husband, but you strive to rule over him, whereas a man should rule over you. Some may ask whether that is the case with me. Go to my house and live, and then you will learn that I am very kind, but I know how to rule. Prepare yourselves for two weeks for tomorrow, and I will let you know that if you tarry with your husbands after I have set you free, you must bow down to it and submit yourselves to the celestial law. You may go where you please after two weeks from tomorrow, but remember that I will not hear any more of this whining. End quote. And that's from the Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, 1856, page 55 through 57. So that was a long sermon. That is, um, that would be really hard to listen to, I think. Don't you think? If you're sitting there in that audience, be basically being chewed out. Well, I mean, I think that this is a one of the crazier sermons that I hear because we hear about blood atonement all the time, but we don't hear about it in the context of plural marriage, and it's absolutely being threatened and tied to plural marriage here. If a woman is complaining, he's saying, yeah, I'll, I'll set you at liberty, I will, you know, let the elders come teach you, but he's also couching it in these threats of, you're, you're going to be destroyed, we're going to shed your blood, you should shed your own blood. There's all this threatening rhetoric around it. What a terrifying time. Well, and the liberty that he's talking about isn't like, it's not like, well, you can go out and move move somewhere else. Those women had no way of making money, and certainly they would probably have their kids with them, right? They had uh, would have nowhere to go. When he's saying, you'll be set free, I'm sure they weren't like, oh, I can be free. They were probably like, oh, crap, I won't have food. Or a roof over my head. Not only that, that's a very good point, but they would have the ire of their neighbors and the threats of these fanatical people that are starting to, to grow on this doctrine. Now, of course, even back then, you can tell that blood atonement was a controversial subject, but there were some. I mean, picture a guy in your ward. Everyone has that person in their ward that's a fanatic about s- certain things. Picture them hearing this, and you know that dude is going to take it super seriously. So... This was a hard sermon, but this uh, such sermons were like this, kept the majority of the women in line. But there were still those who could not endure a life of polygamy. Anna Eliza Young, who filed for a divorce in 1873, she wrote a book about it, and she would go um, on this big tour, and we're going to talk about her. But basically, she sues Brigham Young for divorce in 1873. She claims neglect, cruel treatment, desertion. Um, she claims that Young was worth $8 million and had a monthly income of $40,000. And she asked for $1,000 per month pending the trial. And so Eliza Ann Young, she wrote the book, The 19th Wife, You'll, which is full of inaccuracies. But, I mean, you have to admire the guts of this woman to take on Brigham Young, who is very, very much feared. But there are a lot of inconsistencies in her book, and we'll talk about that later. LDS historian Thomas Alexander commented on the peculiar problems of plural marriage and divorce. He said, quote, Several civil cases involving Brigham Young came before the McKean's court, but undoubtedly the most celebrated was the attempt of Anna Eliza Webb D. Young, the prophet's 27th wife, to sue for divorce. The facts of the case are well known and need not be reiterated here. Judge Emerson at first referred the case to probate courts. After the passage of the Poland Act, it was again returned to the 3rd District Court where McKeon heard it. Brigham Young filed a counterpetition stating that, though it was unknown to him previously, Anna Eliza was not divorced at the time of the marriage, which was not a, ra- a rare 
which was not at any rate a plural or a celestial marriage, and thus was not legal. The defendant was, in addition, legally married to Mary Ann Angel. So anyway, Brigham uses this argument as um, a reason why he couldn't be married to Annalise Young. So we're going to talk about that um, more coming up, and we're going to talk about the divorces. But I just wanted this episode to kind of cover blood atonement and how it was affected in plural marriage. So anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope you'll join us for another episode of the Feminist Born Housewives podcast. And if you can support the podcast, it would be great. Go to the donate button on the right, or I'm sorry, the left-hand side of the screen, and uh, let us know what you think. And if you don't donate, you're going to need blood atonement. <laughs> That's right. Some sins cannot be covered, and not donating to the podcast is one of them. So, And no whining either. Seriously, no whining. Stop whining. Okay. Thank you for listening.